Let's open our Bibles now up to Ephesians. Open to Ephesians chapter 4. And tonight we'll consider verses 7 through 12, the building up of the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. As we've said before, and I'm going to remind you again tonight because I want you to remember it for a long, long time. The book of Ephesians, or the letter to the Ephesians, is divided up into two parts, as are most of Paul's letter. There's, an, there's a theology part, and then there's an application part. I don't, want you to, I don't want you to spend what looks like it's going to be almost two years in Paul's letter to the Ephesians and then walk away someday and, and not remember the, the most basic things about it. But Paul organizes many of his letters this way. You look at the letter to the Colossians, same way. It's four chapters, but the first two chapters heavy into theology, the second two chapters heavy into application. In Ephesians, it's the first three chapters that are heavy, heavy theology. The last three chapters are heavy application. And that really makes sense. I don't know if you can tell. I hope you can tell. But when, uh, when, when pastors design sermons, typically that's what they're doing as well. We're giving you theological information and, and data, uh, not just raw data, but data that's, that's been organized in such a way, hopefully, to help you to understand it. And then typically, at least somewhere along the way, there's a call to action based upon that theology. So we, we design sermons this way as well. Now, not all sermons are designed that way. Sometimes a, a pastor will give a sermon and the, the application's right up front or mixed in. And that's kind of like Paul did in Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. It's not really designed a few chapters and a few chapters. It's theology and application. Theology and application mixed all the way in. But it's certainly Colossians and Ephesians, the book of Romans is that way as well. Heavy theology in the first portion, heavy application in the second portion. And again, it doesn't mean that there's not application in the first three chapters. And it won't mean that there's not theology in the last three chapters. But this is how it's outlined if you happen to be in a, a class someday. You already have uh, the, the bis- big, biggest part of the outline for the letter to the Ephesians. Now, what Paul is going to tell us in the second half, not on the first half, but in the second half, is that those for whom God has done much should live in a way that is consistent with what God has done for them. Those for whom God has done much should live in a way that is consistent with what God has done for them. Remember chapter 1, that great chapter 1, that long sentence that we concluded after that long sentence, God is worthy to be praised. He is worthy to be praised. The Father is worthy to be praised because of these incredible things He did for us. The Son is worthy to be praised because of the incredible things that He did for us. The Holy Spirit is worthy to be praised. We have this inheritance that's incorruptible. It can't pass away. So we've had so much done for us. And since we've had so much done for us, we should live in a way that's consistent with what's been done for us. And that's only fair, isn't it? We should live in a way that's consistent with what's been done for us. Now, as we see the last three chapters unfold, and I don't know if it's going to go faster or slower than the the first three chapters did, maybe a little bit faster because sometimes application's that way. But we're going to find in the last three chapters that Paul is going to tell us that believers should walk in a certain way. Now, walking, again, walking the verb peripateo, could just mean to take one step in front of the other. Paul walked to the temple, you know, or we walked somewhere. But, of course, you know, in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, walking is a metaphor for the way that we should live. So Paul's going to tell us that believers should walk first in unity, and that shouldn't surprise us. That's the, that's the section that we're in right now. That's chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. But he's not going to stop there. Not only should we walk in unity, but we should walk in holiness. And that's chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. Unity, holiness. And then it shouldn't shock us at all that Paul tells us that we should walk in love. A lot of times people like to say John is the apostle of love. I 
I tell you what, if you're an apostle, you're an apostle of love. All the apostles were apostles of love. Don't ever shortchange Paul as being an apostle of love, just like John was. That's chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He's also going to tell us to walk in the light. And light represents different things in different parts of Scripture, but among the things that it represents is revelation from God. Or also holiness, but revelation from God. That's chapter 5, verses 7 through 14. And then finally, we're to walk in wisdom in chapter 5, verses 15 through chapter 6, verse 9. After that, there'll be some applications of each other specific. But unity, holiness, love, light, and wisdom. It's a complete package, isn't it? Now, last week, we considered seven elements of unity that bind us together. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one faith, one God. One, 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 seven times, one. And we get the idea that we are, we, we're all here because we're all in part of the same body. We're all here because of the same spirit. We all share the same hope of the future. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't it wonderful to sit down at a at a coffee shop or at a restaurant or in a prayer meeting with other people who share the same hope for the future. And can't you tell a difference? I mean, I can. Can't you tell a difference when you sit down with folks that don't have that hope? There's just something different about a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who's walking in fellowship with God that knows where they're going should something happen to them. Or, perhaps even more significant, that knows where their loved one has gone if something has happened. And I know so many of you in this room have, I don't even want to use the word lost loved ones. That's a word that we use sometimes. It's not the most descriptive word. But you've lost them, you've lost them in the sense of their current um, companionship, perhaps. But you know where they are, don't you? And you have a confident expectation. The Greek term elphis doesn't just mean hope in the sense, man, I, just, I hope something happens against all odds. The Astros are one of the worst teams in baseball right now. Uh, so much so that we're talking about trading off our best players. And we could say, we could say, and it would be a proper use of the word in English, are the Astros going to make the World Series this year? Well, I hope so. But not very likely, you know. But see, that's not the kind of hope that we share. We share a confident expectation of the future. And that is one of the things that binds us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. I know in whom I have believed. And I am confident that he is that he's able to guard that which I have entrusted to him until that day. And you feel the same way. And that's one of the things that binds us together as friends. Have you ever wondered, among, many, among other things, why your Christian friends, you, you, you will have a, a bond that's tighter in life with your Christian friends oftentimes than you will your own flesh and blood if they're not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not knocking flesh and blood. Of course we want that. But there's something special about this unity, unity, unity. And I keep that in mind because in just a few moments we're going to talk about diversity. But Paul has to establish unity first. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. This is that which we rally around. We, we rally around the, the commonality, the seven elements of unity, the seven elements of commonality that bind us together. As believers in the Lord Jesus, and we have a strong, a strong bond of commonality that unites us. And while Christians come in all shapes and sizes and colors and personalities, we've been given the responsibility by our Savior. And 
that's key right there. It's our Lord himself. It's the one who hung on the cross and saved us that gives us this responsibility to get along. Now, if we were to put, if we were to, to shrink this into more of a one scene or, or one act kind of situation, if we were to picture Jesus on the cross and not, and they weren't all there. I, I suspect someone might have been watching from a distance. John was the only apostle that we know of that was there. But let's just say for a minute, just to pretend, let's pretend that all the apostles or all the disciples who would be apostles, some minus Judas, were all there at the foot of the cross. And if Jesus just spoke the words to these, to these apostles to be, I want you guys to all get along in unity. He could have even said, listen, I know some of you don't get along right now. In fact, just a couple of days ago, a couple of you were fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Remember that? And if he was to say, I want you guys to get along, I'm dying for all of you. And he wouldn't have been able to point except for these eyes. I'm dying for all of you. I intend for you to all get along. You're all part of the same family. You are brothers in me. We could say, wow, that makes a lot of sense. These guys really ought to all get along. Even though they have different personalities, different strengths, different weaknesses, they should get along. Well, all, all Ephesians is doing is in fact broadening it out to the entirety of the Christian community. Because it's like we, we take the people in this room. It's like we were at the foot of the cross and Jesus looks down at us and says, I want you to function in unity. I'm, I'm the one that bought you. I'm your boss. I'm your sovereign. Now, this is what I'm telling you need to do. And isn't it a small thing? We weren't on the cross paying for the sin of the world. He was. It's a small thing to ask. So we've been given the responsibility by our Savior to function in unity. So unity has been stressed throughout this epistle and certainly throughout these first two verses. However, tonight we come across a slightly different concept. And that's unity with diversity. Now, a minute ago, we said that Christians come in all different shapes, sizes, personalities, colors. Well, that's the diversity part. But we're going to find tonight that Christians also come with a variety of giftedness. Not everybody has the same spiritual giftedness. And in fact, to start that off, let's take a look now at verses 7 through 10. These are challenging verses, but, uh, but we're going to cover them tonight in such a way as I think that they will be effective. I certainly hope, they, hope it is. Now, verse 7, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, Therefore it says, speaking of the Scripture, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9 is, verses 9 and 10 are a parenthetical statement. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Verses 7 through 10 have proven extremely difficult for expositors, not just in our time, but over the centuries. And frankly, there's little consensus, even among incredible scholars, there's little consensus with regard to this passage or the details of this passage. We're going to go over some of them. But I want to tell you up front, there's little consensus about this. This is a challenging portion of the letter to the Ephesians. But there is one thing that is agreed, generally agreed to by all, and that's that Paul, in, in these verses, is transitioning from a stress on unity that he's been giving throughout the letter to 
a discussion of the diversity of gifts that function in a unified body of Christ. I hope you see what we're doing. He's been stressing unity, and now he's going to now he's going to take a slight, may I say, a slight break from that, and he's going to say almost, oh, by the way, there is a unified body of Christ, but within that body of Christ, now these are my words, not his, they're, they're different personality types, different skin color types, genders, all different kind of things. But in addition to that, in addition to different personality types within the body of Christ, each individual believer has been gifted uniquely. Now, uniquely, there are some that may give you a gift of pastoring and teaching, some evangelism, some encouragement, and we've studied some of those things before. But while there's a unity of the body, there's a diversity of the gifts that function within that body. And that makes sense. Paul over in, in 1 Corinthians 12 said, everybody, the whole body's not an eye, the whole body's not an arm. If, if all you were was an arm and didn't have the eyes to tell you where to point, you'd be less than healthy. So we have unity with diversity. Now, Paul told the Corinthians that for even as though the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now, he's using a physical metaphor there, but it applies to our passage tonight, too. Now, in verse 7, each and every believer, each and every believer, but to each one of us, so each and every believer has been given a spiritual gift. Sometimes we think that the only people that are gifted spiritually are those who are in some sort of public ministry. We think of somebody like a, a Billy Graham or a, a Louis Palau or, or someone like that, or Ravi Zacharias, and say, wow, isn't that person gifted of God? Well, listen, you need to look in the mirror, not in a bad way, but in the mirror, so I look in the mirror and say, wow, I'm gifted of God too. And some gifts are going to function with or without preparation. Other gifts are be function better with preparation. In fact, I would say most spiritual gifts function just fine if all you're doing is just walking in fellowship with God. You're going to function with that gift naturally, and you don't have to take a test to figure out what your spiritual gift is. It's going to function if you're walking in fellowship with God. Now, not all gifts are that way, but certainly some are. Now, Paul says essentially the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, that he has in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, and that he will in verse 12. And that is this. You'll recall this. We've studied it before. Remember these words from 1 Corinthians 12, 7. But to each one, again, notice all of us, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Now, there's two things we need to remember from that. Each one of us is given a spiritual gift. But why were we given it? When John gets back, would you go ahead and turn that back on? Okay. Yeah. Each one of us has been given a spiritual gift. That's clear. But why have we been given the spiritual gift? For the common good. Now, each of us have a diversity of gifts, but that gift was given for other people, not primarily for yourselves. It's to be used for the common good. In other words, for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, it's my view that this may very well be the most important aspect of the doctrine of spiritual gifts. And that is that a person's spiritual giftedness Mine and yours, our spiritual giftedness is not given primarily to edify ourselves or to enrich ourselves or to comfort ourselves, whatever the gift may be, or to teach ourselves. 
Let's say a person was an extremely gifted teacher. And that extremely gifted teacher said to God, thank you very much. Because an extremely gifted teacher typically needs to be an extremely gifted learner too. So you've got to learn before you can teach. What good would it really do if you had someone who was an extre- extremely gifted in that area and they studied the material and then kept it totally a secret to themselves? And just, hey, I, I learned it. I don't care if you do or not. That wouldn't, that wouldn't do the body of Christ any good at, at all. He gave the gift to teachers so that one, so one could study it and could present it to other people. If this was properly understood and applied, again, in my view, most of the controversy around certain gifts, like, for example, the gift of tongues, would evaporate. If we just understood this principle that spiritual gifts are given for the edification of the body of Christ, for the common good, for the building up of the saints, for the work of ministry, if we were to understand that, then we would understand, for example, that certain, I'm going to put it in quotes for if you're listening to the tape, Certain spiritual gifts functioning today, like, for example, tongues, are functioning in such a way in the overwhelming majority of, of cases where it's something personal. It's a personal prayer in the heavenly language between me and my heavenly Father. How does that help me? If I'm in the room and you're talking gibberish, how does that help me? In fact, Paul, Paul goes over this in 1 Corinthians 14. If there's no interpreter there, you need to keep your mouth shut because it's not being used for the common good. You see, so you, we have, there's a lot of different arguments for whether tongues is valid or not, but tongues as it is practiced today in the vast majority of cases is bogus if for no other reason it's not being used for the common good, for the edification of saints, for the building up of the body of Christ. If we just understood that, we would, uh, we would be far ahead. In fact, the whole idea that the spiritual gifts are for the common good and that tongues as it's being used today is not being used for the common good, but for individual edification, that really, it speaks volumes about the people that are, no pun intended there, but it speaks volumes about the, the people that are exercising that, whatever it may be. Now, there's one more thing we need to note about 1 Corinthians 12, 7, before we return to Ephesians 4. And if you're paying real close attention, I know you are, in 1 Corinthians 12, it's the Holy Spirit that does the gifting. Ephesians 4, it's Christ who does the gifting. Now, some people have looked at that and said there's, con- or there's a contradiction. Or maybe Christ gave the gifts at first and the Holy Spirit gives the gifts later. I don't think it's quite that way. But I, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we go over what these verses may actually mean. There is no contradiction there. In, in 1 Corinthians 12, as, and apparently in Romans 12 too, but in 1 Corinthians 12, the Holy Spirit is the one that does the gifting. But here, it's clearly Christ's gift to us. And that's going to be something we'll need to consider. Now, two factors will help us understand that this is not a contradiction. The first, and I think this should be the most obvious, and that is that there is a functional unity among the members of the Trinity that is so perfect, that is so precise, that it's not a contradiction to ascribe a particular activity to more than one member of the Trinity or the Godhead. For example, all three members of the Trinity are said to be, at one time or another, involved in creation. The Father is the Creator. The Holy Spirit, remember the Spirit of the Lord, hovered over the waters of the deep. The Holy Spirit is the Creator. And then you get over to John chapter 1, and, and it's very clear. John, in the New Testament, it seems pretty unanimous. The Son is the Creator. He's the agent of the Trinity involved directly in creation. 
But we don't consider it a contradiction to say God our Father, the Creator, because we know He was certainly involved in it as well. So there's a, such a unity. There's, there's not a, what they call an ontological unity. And, uh, that would mean that the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are actually one person. Now, Christians don't believe that. We believe in three distinct persons. There's ontological diversity. But there's functional unity. They, they all um, share the same uh, essence. And so, they, so when we say that, that uh, we can say our Father is our Savior, and the Scriptures do, and the Son is our Savior. So there's a, there's a unity in function as well. While there is a, well, they are three distinct persons who all share the same uh, infinite perfection. Now there's a second thing that will help us understand the fact that 1 Corinthians tells us that it's the Spirit. This passage is going to tell us that it's Christ who gives. And that is, if you'll recall back in our study of the Gospel of John or even further back to the life of Christ, right before our Lord is to be betrayed and uh, arrested and crucified, right before that, he gathers the disciples together in the upper room for this final discourse. That's when he instituted the Lord's table. But among the other things that he told them, he said, listen, I'm going away. But he said this incredible thing to me. He said, it's to your advantage that I go away. Remember that? Because I'm going to send another helper. Which means that not only are you going to have a helper in me, in heaven, but you're going to have another helper here on earth. And that other helper would be the Holy Spirit. And that other helper, at least the way the terminology is there in John, the other helper is going to function in complete unity with the original helper, which is Christ himself. So Christ is going to send the Spirit. That's why it's sometimes called Christ Spirit. The our Lord is going to send the Spirit. Actually, technically, I need to be careful. The Father and the Son send the Spirit. Technically, actually, a great battle has been fought over that. Little tidbit of information. But Father and the Son, believe it or not, they have. Father and the Son send the Spirit. But there's a there's a complete unity. There's never been a disagreement in the Trinity. It's never like they have to, to get together on conference call and say, Hey, listen, this Bruce guy down here. Um, I know you said that I want you to do this, but he, man, there's no way. I mean, are you seeing what he's doing lately? And, and, the, and the son says, no, I still want you to do that. The Holy Spirit, no, I don't really want you to do that. No. You see, they don't do that. There's a perfect functional unity between, between son and spirit. That's going to give you the answer already, I, I hope. So when we talk about in 1 Corinthians, it's the spirit who does the gifting. And when we talk about in Ephesians, it's the son. That's not that much. Because what one does, the other one gladly does as well. They are in perfect agreement. Now, no human beings are that way. We have a lot of diversity, and we have diversity of opinions as well. And I don't know how it's going to be in heaven. I think somehow we're going to keep unity and diversity in heaven as well without having any sinfulness. That'll be a trip. We'll see how that works out. Now, in verses 8 through 10, in verses 8 through 10, we have a quotation from Psalm 68, verse 18, at least in the English text. It's verse 18. Now, this is an interesting quotation. The way that Paul quotes it is this way. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And that's the quotation from Psalm 68, verse 18. Paul goes on to, in this parenthetical statement, now my Bible has parentheses, you're right, the parentheses are going to be found in most of them because it is a parenthetical idea. Paul goes on to interpret the passage just a bit for us, and I'm so glad he does, even though the interpretation is still difficult. But let me tell you this. If you were to talk to an Old Testament scholar, particularly one that was specialized in the Psalms, and you ask him to list, say, the top five Psalms that are difficult to interpret, every list is going to have Psalm 68 on it. It's just a very, very challenging Psalm. 
So it's no wonder that this makes for a challenging exposition in Ephesians because this is a challenging psalm that Paul is quoting. And then not only is he quoting it, but get this, he changes it up. Whoa. He changes it up five times. There are five different aspects that he changes here. And he's writing under the Holy Spirit when he does that. Now, a discussion of the particulars of the changes is something that is probably best left to something like a seminary class or a a conference that New Testament scholars attend. There's a lot to that. So I'm not going to dive into the particulars of of the specific changes that he makes from first person or from from one person to another person in terms of their their number or from a verb to a participle. I'm not going to go over that with you. I think I might drive some of you away if I did that. But what I'm going to do is to, I'm going to stress this fact, that the changes that Paul makes when he goes from the Hebrew text into this Greek text, the changes that he makes in no way alter the essential meaning of that text. You see, if Paul altered the essential meaning of the text when he quotes from an Old Testament text to a New Testament text, there would be no point in quoting the Old Testament text. But he, but he is sticking with the meaning, the author's intended meaning, both in Psalm, uh, both the Holy Spirit and the human author in, in Psalm. So he sticks, he doesn't alter the essential meaning of the passage. That being, there is one in victory who give gifts to whom he chooses. That's the message in Psalms, and that's going to be the way that Paul uses it here. There's one in victory who gives gifts to whom he chooses. Now, the near reference, back to Psalm 68, the near reference in this passage is probably Moses. Moses is the one that, that most likely Psalm 68 is speaking about, although Moses' name's not in there. That's the ancient Jewish tradition of the text. That's their understanding of the text, that Moses is the one that's being referenced, that's being referenced in Psalm 68. So we would call him the near reference. He's the initial reference. He's the one who ascended to Mount Sinai or Mount Sinai, received the law, and then descended and brought the law as a gift back to men. That seems to be the context of Psalm chapter 68, verse 18. Now, Paul picks that up and uses it here and lets us know that the ultimate reference is Jesus himself. You see, Moses would be the, the near reference, the ultimate reference, is Jesus. I can tell by the looks on your face. Now you see what I mean by the fact that this is challenging, but hang in there with me. I'm, I'm trying to, to give you a much, as much of an overview as I possibly can. So, Old Testament, this is a reference to Moses. Most likely, Mos, most likely a reference to Moses going up on Mount Sinai, ascending, and then descending. Well, in Ephesians, Paul is clearly ascribing this action to Christ. There's no question about that. And this is the best understanding. Now, there are varieties, almost as many varieties as there are New Testament scholars that study it. Let me put it to you that way. But this is the best understanding that I can come up with. And I have to acknowledge at this point, unfortunately, he's not here tonight for me to do that. But but, uh, Dr. Will Johnson, New Testament Department Dallas Seminary, has helped me tremendously with this. This happens to be one of his areas of specialty. So I'm very much indebted to him for the great help in references that he gave me with regard to this, but the best understanding is that Christ descended to earth. 
Uh, this mostly is likely, when it says the lower parts of the earth, it's most likely a reference to the earth itself, although there are people that, would, that think perhaps it's the grave or maybe even under the earth. But most likely, the, the understanding is Christ descended to earth. He won the victory at the cross. He ascended back to heaven. Okay, you follow me? He descends to earth, wins the victory on the cross, ascends back to heaven, and then sends along with the Father, sends the Holy Spirit back down to earth. So we have another descent as his representative on the day of Pentecost to give gifts to men. Again, Jesus descended to earth. He was crucified. He wins the victory. He ascends back to heaven. And then the Holy Spirit, as Christ's representative, descends to earth. That particular understanding would help us to see that as Christ's representative, Christ is the one giving the gifts through the Holy Spirit who has descended. Admittedly, that's difficult, but I hope that helps at least a bit. Descent, ascent, and then, or rather, descent, win a victory, ascent, go back up, and then the Spirit descends to give the particular gift. Now, I don't want you to get so hung up in that that you miss the beauty of what happens next, because it's what happens next that really forms the central message of the passage. Gifts are given to the church, and the gifts that are given to the church are gifted people. Gifted people. Now, what we're going to talk about tonight with these in verses 11 and 12, these are, at least as they're listed here, these are gifts not offices. Sometimes people talk about the office of apostleship. Well, yes, that's true. There is an office of apostleship, but these are gifts. Remember, Christ descends, he wins the victory, he ascends, he goes back to heaven, the Holy Spirit descends and gives gifts. This is talking about the giving of spiritual gifts. So these are gifts, not offices. So in verse 11, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. The first gift that is mentioned here is the gift of apostle. The, the apostles would include the twelve who had the office of apostleship. Now I'm drawing a distinction here between the gift of being an apostle and the office of apostleship. The office of apostleship is, as best as I can tell, held by 13 people. The twelve plus Paul. Some would even say 12, but, but I would say the best way to understand this is 12 plus Paul. So they had not only the office of apostleship, but a gift of functioning as an apostle. But there were those who had a gift of apostleship, but not the office of apostleship. And those people were, were people like uh, James, the Lord's half-brother, Barnabas, for example, had a gift of apostleship. Uh, Andronicus and Junius, Romans chapter 16, they are listed among the apostles, or among those who had a gift of apostleship. It's also possible, although it's a little harder to prove, that at least at some points in time, Silas functioned as an apostle, as, as did Timothy. At least it looks like he functioned as an apostle some, sometimes. And it also looks like Apollos may have functioned as an apostle, even though they didn't have the office of apostle. This is not the best way to put it, and I, I do it on, with fear and trembling, but it's almost like you had some that were permanent apostles. They had this office as well as they were gifted, 
And then there were some who had a gift of apostleship that functioned as it was needed in a particular circumstance. Nevertheless, these were apostles. Apostles were those who carried the gospel and God's truth with God's authority. Now, this is a period in time in which you had the Old Testament scriptures, you had Hebrew Bible, but you did not have the New Testament. So if someone was to come in and say, listen, I'm speaking for God, I'm an apostle, I have authority, typically they had to have a reason to be believed, and that reason often came from the, in the form of signs and wonders and miracles. Most all the apostles would do that in order to validate uh, their min- ministry. At least we have the validation of most all the apostles having done that. It would appear as though apostles had authority over more than one local church. It would appear as though they had authority over more than one local church. Now, this is important, not so much here in the United States, but for those who will hear this tape in other, on other continents, perhaps, at some point and sometime. The gift of apostleship died out as the infant, matur- as the infant church matured. The gift of apostleship, and the office as well, the office died out with the apostles, but the gift of apostleship died out as the infant church Mature. For example, once you get to the pastoral epistles, and Paul tells you this is how the local church should run. You have elders, and you have deacons, and there's this leadership structure. There's not a need to have an apostle that's over several different churches. These churches are designed to function independently. So the gift of apostleship died out. There is no biblical basis for a man exercising authority over a multitude of churches. Now, it happens but there's no biblical basis for it. It happens in the polls in Rome, for example, who exercises authority over quite a lot of local churches. The Patriarch of Constantinople has the honor of primacy in the Orthodox Church. He doesn't carry quite the same authority that the Pope does in Catholicism, but, but still he exercises leadership and authority over a multitude of churches. In certain parts of the world that I have visited, the title of apostle is one that that men are starting to take to themselves to set them apart from someone else. It's not good enough just to be a pastor or to be a reverend or to be a pastor and teacher. They want to be something else. So sometimes these well-meaning men will take on the title of bishop, which sounds a little higher, more highfalutin than than the title of pastor, although the title of bishop, pastor, and elder are all used interchangeably in the New Testament. I hate to tell them that, but that's, that's the case. Well, it's turned out that wasn't quite good enough. So they started calling themselves apostles. And that wasn't good enough because everybody was calling themselves an apostle. So that didn't set people apart. So one of the latest things is apostle of apostles. If you're an apostle of apostles, when you come in the room, then people need to look your way and get out of the way. And I'm told that there's even one that's beyond that now, and it's patriarch. So uh, if, you're, if you live in a culture that's very title-oriented, you may be tempted to see yourself as functioning as an apostle. But my friend, you're not. You're not functioning as an apostle. Be satisfied with the, with the title elder or perhaps the title pastor. If you want to use bishop, just so you understand, you don't have any more authority than one who is um, an elder or a pastor, then that's fine. A little humility may go a long way in, in helping us this because with this because the title apostle of apostles is ego-driven. It's not biblically based, and we didn't even have that when there were apostles. Okay. You might want, to, might want to pay close attention to that. Now, New Testament prophets are a different thing. New Testament prophets provided edification, exhortation, and comfort 
to the church. Some of these who function as prophets conveyed a new authoritative or new authoritative revelation to the church, which was truth that was going to be revealed later in scriptural form but hadn't been revealed yet. Now, sometimes we think of a prophet being able to, to tell you something about the future, to predict, they call that predictive prophecy. And a lot of the Bible is predictive prophecy. In fact, I think Dr. Walward used to say 25% of the Bible was predictive when it was written. Now, it's not predictive now because a lot of it's already come to pass. But we still have predictive prophecy for the future. But a prophet did so much more than that. A prophet would do something like this. Stand in front of that audience and say, thus says the Lord. And in the early church, there was a great need for this because they had the Hebrew Bible. They had Old Testament scriptures. But there was something new that was in place. And so you had prophets in churches that would speak authoritatively before the Word of God was actually put together and canonized in terms of the, of the New Testament. This is the New Testament gift of prophecy. And again, with the maturity of the church, the gift of prophecy faded out. Because that the function of a prophet, once the, the scriptures were completed, the function of the prophet, one who was going to stand up before the congregation and say, thus says the Lord, has been transferred to the fourth of these offices that I'll talk about in just a moment. But in the meantime, the third of the offices that is mentioned, or the, I'm sorry, I just I messed up. The third of the gifts that is mentioned is the gift of evangelist. The gift of evangelist. Evangelists are those who are engaged or are engaged, this is one that's still in vogue today, in spreading the gospel. Similar, and we have in the past as evangelists, we would call these um, the missionaries today. Oftentimes, a missionary will have a gift of evangelist. Now, I do mission work, but I would be the very first person to stand and tell you I don't have the gift of evangelist. I'm not a first-wave missionary, probably not even a second-wave missionary. I go in on the third or the fourth wave when churches have already been established, and I help to train pastors so that they can edify their congregation. But there are people who have a gift, a special giftedness for evangelism. Here's the, here's the kicker. All believers have the responsibility to evangelize others. But there are some people that are just especially gifted in that area. And all of us, probably right now, are thinking of somebody that we know that is especially gifted in that particular area. So while we all have the responsibility, for example, we all have the responsibility to exhort and encourage, don't we? To be an encouragement to others. But there are certain people that are especially gifted in exhortation and encouragement. Well, the same way with evangelism. There are certain people that are especially gifted in evangelism. And may I mention a couple just from our own congregation? I don't think anybody would mind. I don't think they would mind. Gene Brown, for example, is an especially gifted evangelist. Gary Horton. Many of you know him. He's an especially gifted evangelist. Fred Stowe, I believe, is an especially gifted evangelist. So there are people with the, everybody's got the responsibility there, but there are people with, this, with the gift. Now, this is, we can't run this backwards and look at it from the other direction and say, well, I'm not a gifted evangelist, so therefore I, I don't have the responsibility to witness to other people. Of course we do. But there are people that are especially gifted. I knew a man named Slayton McGregor when I was in seminary. Clayton is one of all-time great guys. We were praying for his wife a few years ago. She had uh, cancer in her throat. Kathleen was just a beautiful, wonderful, incredible lady. As far as I know, she's, she's doing real well right now, and Clayton's very appreciative of that. We would go to a restaurant, just like some other people we know. We'd sit down at the table, and it, it, it's just like people flocked to him. I pray for opportunities to witness. People would flock to him, and they would almost be saying, Hey, listen, can you tell me how to get to heaven? I'm just going to just... 
I wouldn't recommend this, but we were in a car one time. He said, slow down. And so I slowed down. He rolled the window down, and he started talking to the guy next to him. And it was a legitimate conversation. It wasn't any, and he ended up handing him a track at the stoplight. Now, there's something, there's something over and above the normal witnessing techniques there. And we shouldn't be discouraged when we see people like that. We should be encouraged that God has gifted certain people to do that, and we should be motivated to, to do it ourselves. And certainly don't punt and say, well, I'm not going to do it at all. Now, the third gift, or the fourth gift, rather, is pastors and teachers. These are listed together. Pastor and teacher are listed together because they are governed by one article in the Greek text. Now, this is going to imply that these are two characteristics of the same person. Now, what I have on the board, in case you're wondering, that's the, that's the Greek text for this particular verse. Now, what I've done is I've broken it down so it's a little easier to see, and I'll do it on, on both sides here. These first three words say, and he gave, and he gave. That's for this side of the room, and he gave. Now, the, the rest of these four are going to be the list of the gifts that he gave. Now, by the way, this is just a representative. This is a sampling list. If you want to know where the, the list of spiritual gifts are found, uh, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and Ephesians 4. And you've got to put all that together and then realize even then it's just a sample of the list. Okay. Now, the first line up here, and, and he gave some, and some of your Bibles put as apostles. This is some, this two's men, this word right here, some apostles. On this side of the room, some apostles. The next phrase says some prophets, prophetes. Some is prophets. Over here you see the same thing. Some is prophets. The third one, some two's day, some as evangelists. Over here on this side you see some as evangelists. Now, I know you may not be able to read the, the letters, and that's okay, but at least you can see the structure. You see those two words, those two words. Uh, well, I, men is, is, is an equivalent here. Two's men, two's day, two's day. Two's men, two's day, two's day. This some, some, some. It's translated some. Now we get to the last one. We have a two's day. Well, we have two aspects that are mentioned after this one some. Okay? Here you have some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. This, this is what has led most Greek grammarians to understand that these are two aspects to one gift. Here, at least, two aspects to one gift, or two people, or one person is, um, these are two characteristics of the same person who's shepherding the flock with all that that entails, and at the same time, instructing them in God's truth. I hope you see that. You have some, 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 and then some. You don't have another some after teachers here. Now, by the way, there is a separate gift of teaching. Romans 12 talks about that. But this, this is something different here. The some pastors and teachers. That is why there are those in the Christian community that hyphenate this. Pastor, teacher. You've heard that before, and that's, in my view, that's certainly legitimate. Um, you can just you can you can just refer to the office of or the here we go the function of a pastor, and understanding that that function of the pastor also includes teaching. In other words, missing the first one and also including the second one, or or you can say, well, what are you? I'm a pastor and teacher. I I just usually mention the first one. I'm a pastor, but it also includes both. And I hope you see that uh, from the, at least the structure. 
of the Greek text. Now, we need to make sure that we, that we make a mental note in the last couple of minutes that we have of, of this idea of pastoring and teaching, pastoring and teaching. This is the giftedness, the office itself. Remember a minute ago we said there's an office of apostleship and then people function as an apostle? Well, there's, a, there's an office of elder or bishop if you prefer. The function within that office is pastoring and teaching. Now, not all teachers will be pastors. Like I said, in Romans, there's a separate, the gift of teaching is mentioned separately. Not all teachers will be pastors, but get this, hear this. All pastors will be teachers by definition. Now, they may not function that way, but they're supposed to. Not all teachers will be pastors, but all pastors will be teachers, just as not all teachers will be elders. But all elders must be apt to teach. Okay? There is no such thing as a non-teaching elder in a church, at least, at least with regard to a village. Now, the churches would understand this. They'd have a whole lot less problems because a lot of churches have crumbled because of poor decisions as to who's put on that elder board. People are put on an elder board at a church because of, say, financial ability or maybe financial wealth, unfortunately, many times. With, with total disregard to the characteristics that are mentioned in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, as the, what should make up an elder in the church. And one of the things that makes up an elder in the church with this giftedness of pastor, you've got to be able to teach, or it doesn't work that way. So, not all teachers will be pastors, but all pastors will be teachers. Everybody got that? So there is such a thing as someone who's gifted to teach at seminary, that's gifted to teach at Sunday school. That's, it's even gifted to fill in for a pastor from time to time. You know, but in terms of someone who occupies the office of elder and functions as a pastor slash teacher, you've got to be able to teach as well. It's a, it's a dual gift. Now, verse 12 is extremely important, and this is where we'll close. And I don't want to get so tied up in details tonight that you miss this part. Make sure you give me three more minutes of focused concentration, and this, this is going to be worth it. In verse 12, he lets us know the purpose of the spiritual gift. The purpose of the gifts is the equipping of the saints, the equipping of the saints, and the result or the intended result of the equipping of the saints is the building up of the body of Christ. Remember again in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7, when he mentioned giving a spiritual gift there, but to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. He's going he's gonna to say essentially the same thing here. He's just going to expand on that report. First, and again, we should note well that no one's spiritual gift was given to them strictly for their own benefit. No one's spiritual gift was given to them strictly for their own benefit. Giftedness is for the benefit of the body of Christ as a whole. If a gift is not functioning that way, it's either not a legitimate gift or the person who is exercising that gift in a selfish way is not walking in fellowship with God. Okay? If, you, if there is someone who is using whatever God has given them strictly for themselves, then either what they're utilizing is not a spiritual gift, or the person utilizing it is not utilizing it in a spiritual way. And second... We observe that these and other diverse gifts, and he's just mentioned four here, but these and other diverse gifts are given to believers to equip them 
to do the work of the ministry. Now, the ones that have been mentioned specifically are, are to help you to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so your spiritual gifts can function in a fuller way in the body of Christ. That's what it means by equipping you for the work of the ministry. In churches where the pastor does all the work, that is not a healthy church. It is not a healthy church because that means that pastor is not doing what he should be doing. And that's teaching people and helping them to grow so that they'll be motivated to do whatever it is they're gifted to do. You see? So these and other diverse gifts are given to equip believers to do the work of the ministry. That means to function in whatever their area of particular giftedness happens to be, to motivate them so that you don't keep it to yourself. And if, and if it is something where you say, I don't have any idea what my gift is, my advice to you is then walk in fellowship with God and do what comes natural. And it's going to function without you having the strain over whether it's this or that or something else. And the third, the end game, the intended result, is the building up of the body of Christ. That's what this is all about. See, we started with unity. And then we moved to diversity of gifts. That calls back to unity. The point is, between all of this, is the building up of the body of Christ. So in this sense, and the sense in which Paul has spoken about tonight, we're all construction workers, aren't we? We're all construction workers under the employment of our Lord and Savior, who is the head of the body, Jesus Christ. We're all construction workers. Paul's letter to the Ephesians stresses the concept of unity. But at the same time, this unity does not exclude the exercise of diverse gifts. Rather, diversity of gifts builds up the body of Christ, providing it with maturity and stability that's necessary to guard what will be called later the perfect man against, or the mature man against the sinister, sinister attacks of false teaching. Unity and diversity. Heavenly Father, we are... We are so grateful that you have gifted the church in this special way, that you have gifted the church with gifted people. And I know that all of us have been blessed in this way. Help us to function in a way that's very special for the building up of the body of Christ, whatever it may be that you've given. Help us to walk in fellowship so that that gift will function in an unhindered manner. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name.